Some people just like simplicity. And quite frankly, even if the IPP could give them a little like 5% boost and what they could safely spend, some people that's not worth it to them. And, you know, that's totally fine. We're about providing the clients what they want. And if their objective is simplicity, then that's totally okay. Welcome to the only show that simplifies the complicated world of retirement planning while embracing life beyond the numbers. Expect clear insights, accessible tools, expert interviews, and actionable advice. Empowering you to use your values as a roadmap to your ideal retirement. No MBA required. Welcome to another episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. I'm Joe Curry, along with my co-host, as always, Lindsay Wilson. How are you, Lindsay? I'm great, Joe. How are you? I'm great. I'm just trying to kind of get back in the swing of things after my recent trip. I think I probably mentioned it on the last episode, but I was just gone out to BC with some friends for snowboarding. So that was a lot of fun. But yeah, trying to get back in the groove this week. That's right. And then you're off to... Yeah. So we have a family trip along with some business coming up in Phoenix and Arizona. So... Yeah, the kids will be in Phoenix, but we're also going to go to Sedona for a few days and do some hiking and mountain biking. So I'm really looking forward to that, which is nice to be able to kind of tag on something with them and with Ash too, before I get into some of the business stuff I'm going to be taking care of while I'm down there, which is another mastermind, which I go to a couple of these a year, but basically just learning from other advisors, where can we provide more value for clients? Where can we get more efficient? All those types of things. So looking forward to that for sure. So let's dive into today's episode with Braden Warwick. We're going to look at some business owner compensation strategies. What would you say was the key takeaway from the episode? Yeah, so I think one of the main, if not the main key takeaway is that this conversation around business owner compensation often just revolves around, should we take salary or should we take dividends? But there's also other factors that we want to take into account. So one is this idea of these notional accounts that are actually more tax efficient. So we want to kind of balance. And sometimes it's not just always take salary, always take dividend, but it might be taking salary, except when these notional accounts have some value. So in the episode, we'll go into detail what I mean by those notional accounts. I won't give it all away right now. But I think it's important that people kind of change the thinking around how they're paying themselves and kind of get out of that fixed mindset that it's either salary versus dividend. Like those are the only two options. Right. Well, I want to let people know a little bit about Braden, who is a PhD. He serves as the financial planning product architect at PWL Capital. And in this strategic role, he leads the development of financial planning roadmap for PWL clients, focusing on innovative planning strategies and streamlined advisor client engagements. Yeah. So he's a wealth of knowledge. And when you get into this, I can pretty well guarantee almost everybody listening is going to have some trouble following at certain points because some of the stuff does get pretty detailed. You know, Braden's a really smart guy who dug into a lot of data and it's hard to get some of this information across in a simplified way as we try to do. So either way, if you are a business owner, I think that you'll get enough out of this conversation to at least start thinking a little bit more about how you're paying yourself. Excellent. With that, let's jump in. Hey, Braden, welcome to the show. How are you today? Good, Joe. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. I'm excited to chat with you about a topic I feel like gets, in a lot of ways, for some people, strong opinions, specifically salaries versus dividends for business owner compensation. And I know today we're going to take that actually one step further to a third type of income. But before we jump into all that, maybe you could just tell our listeners a bit about, we already had the bio come up, but who you are and what your role is now at PWL. 
Yeah, for sure. So I work at PWL as a financial planning product architect, and that's a new role for me. The main idea is that I want to pave the roadmap for the financial planning deliverable at PWL. So putting together all the pieces and really building around what's available in terms of financial planning softwares out there and then filling in the gaps as needed to deliver a state-of-the-art product to our PWL clients. You know, it it gives some context to the analysis that we're going to dive into. This was kind of one of the pieces that we're building around and complementing what's out there because at the time of the research, there wasn't really anything out there that could allow us to solve for IPPs in the context of a full Monte Carlo analysis. So that was kind of the origin of why we want to do this level of analysis. And yeah, and we're continuing to build that out. That's what my focus is. That's great. And I think that probably one of the reasons there is not a lot or anything out there in this space is because I mean, there's so many variables. So you and PWL, you did a study on optimal business owner compensation. So the paper that you authored, I think with Ben Felix, was optimal compensation, saving and consumption for owners of Canadian controlled private corporations. So could you just start maybe by telling us a little bit about that research, that paper you wrote, and maybe give us the high level synopsis and then we can break it down after? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that research was essentially a case study on our larger projection model that includes all of these variables. I guess the first piece was building the model, which was doing the projections and Monte Carlo analysis that include the tax calculations personally and at the corporate level, you know, at each year of the projection and then packaging that all up and allowing for all of these different variables like CPP and OAS and the notional account balances from the corporation and how that impacts the dividend compensation. So packaging all that up into a model to allow us to run this level of analysis was the first step. And then the second step was writing the paper and doing the case study and picking a case study that was representative of some of our clients. So something realistic and trying to draw conclusions into what the best form of compensation for them is. But then at the same time, understanding that the case study is not representative of everybody. So it's important to actually do this level of analysis for all of our clients because everybody has a slightly different scenario and one variable could impact the entire outcome of the analysis. Yeah, absolutely. From a high level, are there any key takeaways that you found when you put all the research together? Yeah, for sure. So what was interesting and the focus of our paper, we focused on a resident of Ontario, which is interesting from a corporate tax perspective because There's this really interesting transition zone that exists for residents of Ontario, small business owners in Ontario. And the way it works is once you start earning passive investment income inside the corporation above $50,000 per year, typically in all the other provinces aside from Ontario and New Brunswick, the small business deduction rate starts getting clawed down in terms of the amount of active business income that you can use towards the small business deduction. But Ontario and New Brunswick decided not to adopt the federal tax rates and not to claw that back. So there ends up being the sweet spot in between passive income levels between just over $50,000 where you start effectively getting a discounted rate on GRIP because GRIP gets earned at the federal corporate tax rate, which gets clawed back. But the Ontario small business deduction remains. So when you do the full cash flow analysis, it ends up being the lowest effective tax rate when you combine corporate and personal tax in this little transition region where you're getting the discounted grip over 
$50,000 of passive investment income inside the corporation, which was kind of counterintuitive at first. We didn't realize it going in. But once we did all the math, we realized that this is the case. So the implication of that means that effectively business owners in Ontario and New Brunswick are incentivized to keep money inside the corporation. But we also have vehicles like the individual pension plan, which allow for more tax deferred contribution room. And that's kind of incentivizing the opposite, where we want to take the money out of the corporation and get it into this pension to get more tax deferred space. So it wasn't super obvious to us, like what the best approach is. Like we know there's benefits to both. And that was kind of really eye opening to see in a lot of cases, the IPP still made a lot of sense, even in that context. Okay. Interesting. So maybe you could tell us, and we're going to come back to some more of the details here, but there's a lot of moving pieces in this research. So could you just maybe give us a little bit of insight to what are the variables we're looking at? Why is it so difficult to just come up with, this is the best way of doing it? Yeah, for sure. So there's a ton, of course. So even just that providence of residency makes a big difference because you have an entirely different corporate tax rates for each province. So that's one right off the bat. A big one is for sure the revenue that the corporation is earning. There's also a bit of a sweet spot in terms of corporate revenue as well. So for clients with lower amounts of corporate revenue, say they're not actually saving much inside the corporation, most of that revenue is getting passed through to the individual and used for personal consumption or personal savings. There's not really a huge advantage to using the IPP because the whole point of the IPP is to take funds that are used as savings inside the corporation and get them into a tax deferred vehicle. So definitely corporate revenue is a big one. And then there's also the opposite effect for corporations with super high amounts of revenue, because what's interesting about the notional account balances, I know we're diving right into the weeds right here, right away, but the notional account balances stay constant in nominal terms, which means that they depreciate in real terms. So if you have a huge amount of investments inside the corporation that are accumulating large amounts of CDA and RDTOH room, it might make sense to prioritize passing those dividends through to the client first as a form of payment instead of forcing a salary, which again makes the IPP not super attractive. So there's a lot of different variables that kind of all come together to make the recommendation for each client. Okay, maybe we could just break down a little bit. What do you mean when you're talking about notional accounts? So most people are going to know what salary means. It's just you're getting a paycheck. It's T4 income, you get RSP contribution room. Or there's, you pay a dividend, you know, a lot of, I don't want to say accounts, but I'll say accounts that I know, and not all, but a lot of them recommend take the dividend because then you don't have to pay your CPP and just invest that tax deferred at the corporation. That's usually the, the conversation, salary versus dividend, right? So can you talk a little bit more about that more dynamic type of income and the notional accounts? Essentially, these notional accounts, they're just used for accounting purposes. So you don't go into your bank and open up an RDTOH account or something like that. There are ways for accountants to group a sum of money that has a specific tax characteristics, essentially. So for the capital dividend account, CDA, you generate CDA by having realized capital gains inside the corporation. And essentially what that means, when you start accumulating a CDA balance is you can pass through that dividend to the owner of the corporation tax-free. So it's not taxed in the hands of the individual, which is obviously a nice tax-efficient vehicle. And there's also RDTOH, which gets accumulated when the corporation earns eligible and non-eligible dividends. So there's actually ERDTOH, which is the eligible portion, and NRDTOH, which is the non-eligible portion. And essentially, 
when those dividends get taxed up front and then you're getting a tax refund when you pass that dividend out through to the owner of the corporation. So the big thing that you're saying there a minute ago is if you have these kind of tax efficient ways to get money out to you personally, it doesn't make sense to just keep them there and not use it because every year you wait as the cost of living is going up, the amount in that CDA is not necessarily going up. So you're actually kind of losing purchasing power. Correct. Exactly. And It has the biggest impact on your capital dividend account because all of that money is tax-free. So, you know, $100,000 today is not going to be $100,000 next year. It won't be able to buy you the same amount of goods. So the idea is if those balances are available, then it makes sense to prioritize passing them through in a lot of cases. But again, it's one of the variables in the larger picture of salary versus dividend questions. Sure. So I think from some of the findings, someone who is looking to maximize the income throughout their lifetime, assuming they have enough income coming in, it looks like the IPP was a a really good choice in most of those scenarios. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. And just the main reasoning why is because essentially, if you're trying to maximize spending, you're not going to have the same buildup of your investment portfolio that you would have if you're someone that is very content with spending under their means and is naturally a big saver, essentially. So those types of people are going to accumulate large amounts of investments, and then it might make sense to prioritize passing those through as dividends to get the tax-efficient personal income. But for those that are focused on spending the most, they're not likely to have that same level of buildup of savings inside the corporation. And paying the salary and setting up an IPP probably makes a lot of sense. Again, and assuming that the corporate revenues are high enough to warrant it. Okay. And maybe you could just take a second and explain some of our listeners probably not familiar with what an IPP even is, individual pension plan. Yeah, for sure. So it's similar to a defined benefit pension in the way that it's calculated in terms of the contribution. So most people are probably familiar with an RSP. Depending on your salary, you get RSP contributions up to approximately 18% of your salary unless your salary is over the cap. But IPP contributions, the calculation is not quite as simple. And actually the maximum amount of contribution room actually increases each year. So the older you get, the more contribution room that you'll be able to have into the IPP. And it is similar to the RSP. It's also a tax deferred vehicle, except it's owned by the corporation and the beneficiary is the owner of the corporation. So you have to be at least a 10% owner of the corporation in order to set up an IPP. And you always have to have that corporation in place to continue to maintain the IPP. Okay. So that kind of leads to another question. We're talking to a business owner who is the sole shareholder. They set up the IPP, makes a lot of sense, but then they go and they sell their business when they go to retire. What's going to happen to that? I guess the first question is, is there a holding company attached to that? And if they're keeping the holding company and the holding company is what owns the IPP, then that's okay. But if they're selling everything altogether, they'll have to wind up the IPP. They have to own at least 10% of the corporation that owns the IPP. Okay. And if they're winding that up, does that just look like uh, taking the community value out of a defined pension plan? Correct. Yeah. So there's a calculation that goes into it and it depends on the current market value of what's in the IPP and the amount of money that you can take tax-free and put it in a locked-in retirement account or anything above that amount that you can transfer tax-free, then you have to pay tax on it as if it was income earned in that year. Okay, perfect. Now, if we're talking about RSP versus IPP, 
Is it safe to say it really only makes sense for the added expenses and complication that comes with an IPP if you are maxing out your RSP and still have additional funds to put away? Yeah, correct. It only makes sense if you're starting to accumulate savings inside the corporation. So if your corporation's not earning enough active business income yet to really start saving, keeping money in there for retirement above and beyond what you're investing in your TFSA and RSP personally, then it probably doesn't make a ton of sense to open up the IPP because you're not going to get that added benefit essentially. And there is, like you mentioned, Joe, there's a lot of complexity with it. And there is the added actuarial fees because you have to get audited every three years. And there's a whole bunch of added overhead to, to maintaining an IPP for sure. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So if we're talking about someone, I know I'm just throwing scenarios at you. I'm just thinking about our listeners. <laughs> someone who's maybe they're maxing out their RSPs. Maybe they don't have a ton of extra cash flow beyond that for savings. Does it make sense that they continue to pay themselves a salary, they max out those RSPs, but they go back when they get that opportunity to pay out from those notional accounts like the CDA, that they kind of put a hold on salary to make those dividend payments and maybe put that money in tax-free savings accounts or something else? So in our analysis, we actually looked at something that I called the dynamic salary strategy, which essentially prioritizes that passing through of the notional account balances and then takes salary for the remainder of consumption. So that strategy does make a ton of sense in a lot of ways. Again, it really depends on the client's personal situation as to like if that is the strategy to use, but we definitely saw it beneficial in a lot of cases. That's great. So you mentioned how with the IPP, you get more contribution room as you get older. Is there a certain point in time, assuming that the business owner has enough cash flow to be again over max funding their RSPs, is there a certain age where it makes sense to start using an IPP? Yeah, you're right that there is a specific age that it starts to make sense. And it's typically in the early 40s, 42, 43. You'd speak with an actuary to get a, a proper quote on the client. But Typically around the early 40s is when you start to see the IPP contribution room start to exceed the RSP contribution room. And that's when it starts to make sense to open up the IPP. So even for our clients, say if we have someone in their 30s where we're running the projection and see that, okay, the IPP makes a lot of sense, we would not open it up until they reach that age of 42, 43, where the contribution room starts increasing above and beyond what they would have had with their RSP. And the reason it's simply just due to the carrying costs associated with the IPP. If the IPP is not generating any extra contribution room now, there's no point in paying that actuarial fee to have it running. And the beauty of the IPP too is that you can purchase past years of service. So even when they're in their 30s and taking the maximum salary that they need to maximize their contributions, all of that past service can be purchased when they go to open up the IPP at 42. And they're not losing anything by waiting until their 40s to open it up. Okay. A lot of our listeners are getting closer to retirement. So if we look at that from the flip side, is there a point closer to retirement where it's kind of, it doesn't make sense to do it anymore? So it really depends also on what they had been doing up until now in terms of the past service. So if there's somebody that has always taken a large salary and they have a large sum of RSP, they've accumulated from that. And if there's significant savings inside the corporation as well, then that might make a ton of sense because then they can purchase back those past years of service. They can make a big contribution up front 
and pass the dollars from the corporation into the IPP and get a tax refund for that. But on the other hand, if there's someone that's, you know, in their 50s, has been paying themselves dividends the whole time and maybe doesn't have much in the corporation in terms of savings, then it probably doesn't make a ton of sense to open it up, especially when you consider if their time horizon to retirement is fairly short. They're just not going to get enough years of benefit out of it to warrant the added complexity and overhead. Okay, fair enough. I mean, my last question around the IPPs here is, assuming that there's, again, enough cash flow, everything makes sense from that standpoint, what are some of the potential drawbacks or why would someone maybe still not want an IPP or is there a reason? You know, some people just like simplicity and quite frankly, even if the IPP could give them a little like 5% boost and what they could safely spend some people that's not worth it to them. And, you know, that's totally fine. We're about providing the clients what they want. And if their objective is simplicity, then that's totally okay. Awesome. So we've gone pretty deep, but I mean, we could probably keep going deeper, but I don't want to lose everybody listening. So if we just kind of pull it all back together. So some of the things you guys have looked at is rather than just thinking dividends versus salary, you're looking at dividends versus salary versus more of a dynamic type income? Like, do we look at these notional accounts and make sure we're getting those paid out because they are more tax advantageous? By not paying them out, we're we're losing some future purchasing power. We didn't touch too much on this, but we talked about with the IPP, again, assuming the cash flow is there, that might be the better choice of trying to put as much in there as we can if we're trying to just maximize spending in our lifetime. And maybe the flip side of that we didn't really talk about, if someone is really trying I guess they're not going to be spending everything they make and they accumulate over the years and, and they want to put a, an emphasis on maximizing their state value. How would that change the scenario? Yeah, so I touched on it a bit earlier, but it's really that person that is okay with living under their means, essentially. And by nature of that, they'll end up accumulating a large portfolio inside the corporation. So for those folks, it oftentimes makes sense to pay out dividends is what I've found because One, their spending is typically on the lower end because they live a fairly modest lifestyle. And on the other hand, their portfolio values are quite high. So things like realized gains and and eligible dividends might end up being pretty significant and you might be able to fund a pretty significant portion of their lifestyle with these tax-efficient vehicles. Okay. And in that scenario, is there any sense of having a certain amount of salary just for RSP contribution room or does it just make more sense to pay dividends? And then when you have anything in those notional accounts, take it out of there first. Yeah, it totally depends on a case-by-case basis, definitely. But in general, if there's not a lot in the notional account balances, then it probably makes sense to take the salary and fund the RSP. But if there's large, significant sums of notional account balances, then it might make sense to try and prioritize those. Okay. So that might be something really that shifts over someone's lifetime. Earlier on, before they built up the portfolio within the corporation, they might be doing more RSPs, but as they're getting excess and keeping excess investments in the corporation, then it's going to create more in those notional accounts. Yeah, exactly. So going back to the dynamic salary strategy that I mentioned in the paper, that's exactly how it went down because we assumed that starting off, they didn't have much for notional accounts. So you saw that salary was high. It was 175K or something in the early years when there wasn't a lot of notional accounts. But then over time, as those notional account balances grew, then we started to see that salary come down. And then leading up into retirement, essentially salary was basically nothing. And they were funding consumption from dividends because those notional accounts were so high. Awesome. That's great. So 
we've touched on quite a bit here. I want to just finish up, Brayden, if you could just tell us a bit about where people could find you, how they can find PWL Capital. Yeah, for sure. So pwlcapital.com is our website. There's tons of content on there. The paper that we talked about is on there. I'm sure Joe can link it. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, my colleague, Ben Felix, he's got the YouTube channel, Common Sense Investing. He's got about three podcasts, but <laughs> the Rational Reminder podcast is his big one. Yeah. So we'll put all that in the show notes for sure. And I mean, I listen to Ben's podcast all the time, Ben and Cameron, they always have a lot of good info on there. So I appreciate you joining us today, Braden. It gives a lot to think about and kind of changing that conversation around salary versus dividends. So thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. It was great. All right. Investment services are provided through Matthews & Associates Investments of Aligned Capital Partners Incorporated and approved trade name of Aligned Capital Partners Inc. ACPI. Only investment-related products and services are offered through ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI and covered by the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Tax planning, financial planning, and insurance services are provided through Matthews & Associates. Matthews & Associates is an independent company separate and distinct from ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI. Matthews & Associates are not licensed tax professionals, and you should consult with your tax advisor before acting on any recommendations. Visit retirementplanningsimplified.ca and join the Retirement Planning Simplified community where we explore the complicated world of retirement planning while embracing life beyond the numbers. As a member of our community, you'll receive insights, tips, and the latest retirement planning tools straight from us to you.